Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Hi, Chris. Uh, Hello again. Lots to talk about today, as usual. Uh, We have a lot of interest rate stories coming out of the United States. We have interest rate stories coming out of Europe. Uh, We have a very strong labor market in Europe at the moment. But I just want to start by looking at uh, the car sales data that was published by the Society of the Irish Motor Industry yesterday for the month of January. And um, it, it is interesting because it shows a remarkable structural shift in the Irish car market. Uh, in, the first, in the first month of the year, January, there was just over 25,000 new cars registered. And the interesting thing, well, there was a few interesting things in there. One was that there was 2,714 pure electric vehicles sold, which is 178% higher than January of last year. And EVs accounted for 10.8% of the new car market, whereas in January of last year, it was 3.9%. And for the whole of last year, EVs accounted for 2.8% of the market. And as far back or as recently as 2017, electric vehicles accounted for just 0.05%, less than 1% of new car sales. So clearly, the consumer here, despite the lack of infrastructure, despite the lack of um, understanding really about um, EVs, the consumer here is reacting, you know, very, very strong growth. And it it is interesting that um, petrol has um, declined 28.6% of the total market. It is still the um, 
the, the, the strongest segment of the market, but it's declining um, in, in a trend way. And diesel is now down at 22.5%. Um, that compares to 35.8% last year. So we are seeing a pretty remarkable shift in um, the Irish new car market towards EVs. And indeed, hybrid and EV, these are battery technology and cars um, now account for about 48% of the total market. So there is an incredible structural shift. The other thing that was really interesting in January was for the first time ever, automatic cars outnumbered manual cars. Um, I have no idea why that's happening really, other than I, I presume a lot of the EVs and the hybrids are actually automatic rather than manual. But I think uh, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a noteworthy event that automatics have taken over. And I have to say, personally, the only automatics I've driven have been in the United States. I've never driven one here. So it's interesting to see the Irish consumer um, responding in that way. Are you seeing similar trends in the UK? Yeah, very much so. Um, uh, I think the answer to your question about automatic, though, is, is that I think virtually all, if not all, uh, electric cars are automatic. I mean, the, the gearbox system is, is, is completely different to the one that we're used to. I, too, am not a petrol head or any other kind of car head, so I, I am not an expert in this area. But certainly... You can see it as you walk down any street, any suburban street in the UK, the number of cars sitting in driveways um, or in the road being charged from either public charging points or private charging points. It, and it's backed up by similar stats to yours, Jim, is that where people can, they are buying electric cars. And you can see that reflected in the way in which global car manufacturers, not just Tesla, are changing their business models. Um, I think General Motors announced an incredible amount of money to be spent on building electric uh, car facilities around the world earlier this month, uh, earlier this year. Uh, I think Ford have done something the same. So the world is going electric with uh, lots of... Um, I think that's good, obviously. It's an environmental thing. Um, it's very important that the electricity that's generated... Uh, for those cars, for the recharged batteries, is green energy. And um, there are lots of issues about that. Uh, there's actually lots of issues about just electricity generation capacity. And, of course, the other thing that we both know and love is that the fiscal implications, the what this means for government finances is pretty profound uh, because of taxation on things like, or taxation of petrol and diesel, Electricity isn't taxed in the same way. So there's going to be a big hole in government finances. So there's lots and lots of things going on with all of this. And um, lot, lots, it's a good thing, but lo lots of questions and lo lots of unanswered questions, actually. But um, I think it's something that most people would broadly welcome. Our, our streets will get quieter, that's for sure, because these cars are very quiet. They, they will indeed, but I, I think um, I, I wouldn't be fooled by these strong numbers for January because EVs are very expensive relative to internal combustion engines at the moment. And the average age of the car on the road in Ireland is around 10 years at the moment. OK, so there's a lot of people driving older, higher polluting cars 
that really will not be able to afford the jump from an older car to a new EV. So EVs are very much for the affluent at the moment because they are so relatively expensive. So I think to, to really get mass buy into EVs, a number of things need to happen. Obviously, the charging infrastructure needs to be improved dramatically and quickly. Um, secondly, we need to ensure uh, the electricity is generated, as you say, from renewable sources. But thirdly, um, I do believe incentives will have to be put in place to enable people driving older cars to trade up to newer secondhand EVs if such things exist at the moment, which they don't. But I, I guess increasingly you will see a bit of a, a secondhand EV market. But I, I, I think there is going to have to be, if the state and government believes that um, the climate targets that we signed up to um, for 2030 and 2050 and the implications of that for the nature of the car fleet here, if the state wants to achieve that, they are going to have to intervene more aggressively to provide incentives to get people into EVs. So it, it's a challenge. And um, I obviously, I, I don't think we're going to be able to get this data, but I guess if you looked at the socioeconomic profile of the people who bought the 2,700 plus EVs in January, you know, it would be um, be better off people doing that. So um, there's there's a lot of challenges here, but at least it is moving in the right direction. It it is a good trend, but uh, there's a lot of work to be done. There's no doubt about that. Yes, absolutely. Um, in other news, as they say, uh, something we wanted to talk about today, talking of technology and technological improvements, um, we had Google results overnight and they joined Apple and other technology companies, actually, but particularly Apple in announcing blowout profit numbers. Uh, same old, same old for these companies. Their, their profits just keep going through the roof. Their profits just keep beating expectations. Wall Street analysts can't keep up with them. Um, in some ways, this this game of beating analyst forecasts is a game. It, it's a game of expectations management so that they tell the analysts and the marketplace a few things to enable the analysts to produce a certain set of numbers. And it's all done in such a way that the companies can then beat those expectations and everybody's happy. Um, but it was a big beat. And Google shares are up in pre-market trading by around 10%, which if you think of a company of Google's size for the share price of that move after hours, it may or may not be sustained, but it is um, pretty chunky. And the um, the profits of these companies have for a number of years been extraordinary, and they continue to grow at a very rapid rate. They're weathering coming out of the pandemic very, very well. Now that's of course, is good news for those companies. It's very good news um, in principle anyway for Ireland. Uh, it, there's always a caveat that um, we don't know where these increased profits will actually end up being declared, particularly with some of the changes that are coming down, coming down the road. Uh, but on the face of it, it is quite likely that these increased profits will no doubt help Ireland's tax take because of the presence of these companies and the way in which they declare a lot of these profits in Ireland and pay Irish corporation tax. So uh, far from the corporation tax thing hitting Ireland badly over the next few years, it's in my book, it looks so far so good. What do you think, Jim? 
Yeah, I, I agree. Um, there, there has been a remarkable correlation between the earnings performance of these tech companies and the tax take here in Ireland from corporation tax. We collected over 15 billion in corporation tax last year. Um, I think around 83, 84% of that comes from what we describe as large companies dominated by these multinational companies. Um, and indeed, that was a record level of corporation tax. And indeed, it is estimated that 10 large companies, all of which are multinationals, accounted for over 50% of that corporation tax take. Um, so that's that that's really positive stuff. Um, but I, I guess it does send out a few notes of caution. Um, is there a level of concentration risk here? You know, is our tax base becoming too dependent on a very small number of very large companies? And indeed, the Irish Times had an editorial um, very recently talking about the risks to Ireland from this concentration in a small number of multinational companies. And um, I suppose you could say also that, that that risk is not just a tax one. It may be an economic one as well in the sense that there's 278,000 people working directly for these multinational companies. So um, I, I wouldn't regard it as a risk, actually, as the Irish Times described it. Um, I would describe it as a vulnerability, something we need to be very cognizant of. And we need to make sure that as a country, we remain as conducive to foreign direct investment as possible, because for the last 30, 40 years, Ireland's economic model has been driven by a focus on attracting foreign direct investment into the country. It has been incredibly successful. Um, over 50% of the jobs created last year were outside of Dublin. So that's important as well in terms of more balanced regional economic activity. But um, it, 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 so we, we can't turn around and start criticizing this vulnerability or risk, whatever you want to call it, that Ireland has because of those multinationals. It has been a key part of our industrial strategy. And I actually believe that the pillar one and the pillar two tax changes won't impact significantly on Ireland. And just to, um, I guess, elucidate what the pillar one and pillar two are very quickly, pillar one um, are moved to try and ensure that companies pay a greater proportion of tax in the jurisdiction where the economic transaction takes place as distinct from where the balance sheet of the company resides. Um, the second point is that the pillar two is the introduction of a minimum effective corporation tax rate of 15%. So that would be up from 12.5% in Ireland's case. So, um, and of course, there is still quite a way to go before these tax changes can be imp implemented, not least to get US Congress to sign up to it. But it is envisaged that these two changes will be implemented in 2023. But um, I don't see them as posing a massive threat to Ireland's economic model but it does pose the obvious challenge for us that we need to make sure that all of those other non-tax attributes that we that make us attractive foreign direct investment remain as positive as possible. And something we discussed in last week's last podcast, housing is clearly a key part of that, because if you're going to continue to attract foreign direct investment in the country, you sure as hell need to make sure that they have houses that they can live in, that they can afford. 
Yeah, the, the issue about risk, I think, is interesting because it raises, uh, in part at least, the history of these, this, all this stuff. And if you remember the way in which Ireland has attracted these industries, the, the way in which the IDA in particular has attracted all of these industries is principally in the, and at first via the lower corporation tax rate. But if you look at the marketing literature used by the IDA, they, they talk about all sorts of things, not least Ireland's young, well-educated workforce and other factors, other pull factors. But the tax rates being the number one thing to get them in. And when this original stroke of genius was implemented, uh, it was hoped that all sorts of different firms would come. And I don't think that there was any particular aspiration for one particular sector to dominate. Remember, uh, back in the 80s, the International Financial Services Centre was set up in Dublin to help financial firms avail of this corporation tax rate. And a lot of them did arrive, but they didn't arrive in the way that people had hoped. People hoped that a lot of front office activities, as they're called in that business, would arrive, but instead an awful lot of middle and back office. So there's a lot of serendipity, a lot of accident, and nobody nobody knew back then that Apple and Google um, even existed, let alone were, were going to become two of the biggest companies, and in Apple's case, um, the first $3 trillion market capitalization company in the world. And certainly there was no no way on earth anybody thought that the profits of these companies would grow in the way that they have. So there was nobody decided to place Ireland's bets on all of these companies. Um, so that, in a sense, it's it, the way in which it's worked out has been just pure chance and circumstance. It's not been uh, a risky bet, if you like. Where the risk arises is what you've done with those tax revenues. If you've actually taken it um, a different approach to these tax revenues, then it would have been you would have had far less vulnerabilities than the ones that you spoke about, Jim. Because what you've done is that you've spent them, and um, that was the wrong thing to do. Now, uh, if you think that these tax revenues are permanent, are there forever, then it's fine. Yeah, you're absolutely right to spend them, but none of us think that they are going to last forever. So there's a component that is permanent and a component that was transitory. Very hard to calculate, grant you. A bit like discovering a natural resource like oil, um, like the British and the Dutch did with the North Sea oil. Everybody knew that one day it would run out. Nobody was ever quite sure when it did, when it would. Um, there's still oil there, um, not, not as, nearly as much as there used to be. Well, I can remember many, many years ago, people forecasting that by the end of the 90s, the oil would have run out. So it's, a, it's always a difficult game forecasting when these things will run out. But what the British did was that they spent all the money and they've got nothing to show for it at all. In many ways, uh, in some ways, it harmed them because the natural resource drove up the exchange rate and they acquired what was actually called Dutch disease. And that high exchange rate helped destroy their manufacturing industry base. Same thing happened to Holland, which is why it is called Dutch disease. But the Norwegians also had a lot of oil and gas and they now have one of the biggest sovereign wealth funds in the world because they decided to save their money. So these are the kind of choices that um, could be made. And I, it's not too late, actually. I would actually set up a sovereign wealth fund for Ireland now. And um, in, God, God bless him, Charlie McCreevy tried something similar. Um, and save, you know, say we're going to put 20% of corporation tax revenues into this sovereign wealth fund or some percentage um, in order to pay for future something or other, public sector, private sector, state pensions or something. Um, and in, as in recognition that you, you need to be saving 
In other words, you need to be investing these 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 monies. And I know the state does some investment, but by no means the island's infrastructure still isn't good enough. It hasn't got good enough broadband. It hasn't got a good enough um, lots of different bits of infrastructure to keep these companies coming, to keep these companies here, even perhaps. So I I do think that um, there are there are, there are quite radical things that still could be done with these corporation tax revenues for as long as they last, and saving a part of them in a sovereign wealth fund would be one proposal that I would make anyway. What do you think about that idea, Jim? Yeah, absolutely. I think it makes a lot of sense um, because the biggest mistake governments can make, and we made it here in the run-up 2007-2008, was we spent tax revenues, buying tax revenues, we spent aggressively. um, And a lot of these tax revenues were emanating from the construction sector and property. And then, of course, um, when the construction property sector disappeared, those tax revenues disappeared. So suddenly we were left with a vastly depleted tax base and this very high level of spending. And as we know, with government spending, once committed to it is very hard to roll back from that expenditure. So, and there, there's definitely a risk we are doing the same thing at the moment. So I would 100% agree with you that the notion of setting up um, some sort of sovereign wealth fund to make sure that these tax revenues are used in the most productive way possible, um, I think would be very, very worthwhile. But instead, at the moment, we're just spending it as we get it. So hope, and, and of course, during COVID-19, perhaps there's no choice, but I think we do need to take a much more strategic approach to that. I think it would be good. Uh, one other point I would make is that while you say um, you know, there was luck involved in these companies we attracted the country. Um, I also think that the IDA, there was a lot of skill involved because the IDA, you know, back in the day, it started off by targeting manufacturing and we had companies making PCs and stuff in Limerick and elsewhere around the country. Um, and then gradually, as the nature of our cost base changed, um, as manufacturing activities migrated to lower labor cost countries, we made sure that we stayed up the value chain in a sense. We kept targeting what we regarded as the up and coming industries. And one of the more recent successes in that regard has been the whole area of medical devices, life sciences, um, and indeed the whole social media thing. So the, the model here is evolving. You know, the FDI model that the IDA uses today is very different than it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago. And um, the challenge for the IDA obviously will be to keep ahead of this curve, Uh, but it it is doing it very, very successfully at the moment. So it is definitely one of the good news stories um, coming out of Ireland. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I would add to my sovereign wealth fund idea by pointing out that something has to be done. Many people have pointed this out over many years, about the future commitments, future, you know, the liabilities of the state, what the state has promised to, to do in the future. And the number one, of course, is the, uh, the great unmentionable, the pension, the state pension. And we have a recommendation out of the Oireachtas, I think today, Jim, that the much debated rise in the pension age from 66 to 67 looks to be off the agenda. Is that right? Uh, that's correct. Yes, the recommendation is that um, the, from the Oireachtas Committee is that the pension age will stay at 66. Um, you can see why that's being done. It's for political reasons, because 
increasing it to 67 or beyond has proved incredibly contentious from a political viewpoint. It's a little bit like the water charges. Um, that notion is now likely to die a death. I suppose from a selfish perspective, I would say that, yeah, that's great news. But from the perspective of the state finances, um, I think it is a very, very bad move because with aging populations, people are living longer. Uh, the financial liability implied by keeping the pension retirement age at 66 is very, very significant financially. So this is another massive financial burden on the state and that they could have done something about. But there is a total political unwillingness to do it. But that's politics. Yeah, we discussed this the other day when we said that, you know, uh, decisions that are taken to get today that have all the political costs today, but all the economic benefits in the future never get taken. And the pension age is that classic example of exactly what we're talking about here. Because raising it to 67 today would annoy people like us, Jim, dare I say, if not, maybe me rather than you. Um, but all of the fiscal monetary benefits to the state would only flow over a period of time in the future. And other politicians would get the benefit of that if there is a political benefit from extra cash, which usually there is, of course. It was, a, frankly, Jim, it was a ridiculous decision with no basis in finance or economics. I understand the politics of it, of course. We've, we've spoken about that. But People need to, I think, understand where this 65, 66 pension age came from. The state had a 65 pension age for many, many years. And this originally came from when Britain had, the, of course, the same thing. Um, it, it, it predates uh, um, the independence of the state 100 years ago, these sorts of decisions. And indeed, the original pension age of 65 is often attributed to Bismarck, Germany's, Germany's ruler, who devised the world's first really defined benefit or state pension scheme for the Prussian army. And actuarially speaking, um, it was a brilliant scheme because he implemented a retirement age of 65 for his Prussian army officers, most of whom were dead by then. And um, not least because they were killed in war, but an awful lot of people didn't live till they were 65. So it was what the actuaries call a very sustainable pension scheme and uh, looked to be well financed. And indeed, when the 65 age thing became widespread around the world, not least in Britain and Ireland, uh, it was, from that actuarial point of view, not a bad scheme because an awful lot of people retired at 65, collected the pensions for one, two, three years, and then shuffled off this mortal coil. And so they didn't collect their pensions. There wasn't this vast cohort of people collecting pensions for 10, 20, 30 years now. Um, as you say, rightly say, people are living a lot longer than they did a century ago. So it's nuts that we still have this age. It's nuts that we still have this ageist thing about uh, healthy people in their 60s and 70s. Um, they must retire. And, uh, you know, there are all sorts of social implications of this, not, not economic ones. But we do need, I think, as populations are aging, uh, to get the pension age up and also to get attitudes changed towards older workers in the workforce. I would say that, wouldn't I? But we said before that talking about pensions is one way for us to lose 10% of our own listeners. So I think we should probably move on and talk about a, a couple of other things before we finish today, Jim. One thing that caught my eye today, um, or over the last couple of days, is the way in which 
money markets, financial markets are now pricing in two ECB rate hikes this year. So if you're an Irish mortgage holder, you have, according to the markets anyway, the risk of one or two mortgage, uh, mortgage rate hikes this year. Do you think that's likely, Jim? Uh, it's it's interesting. Yeah, as you say, the markets are now starting to bet on two increases this year, totaling a quarter of 1%. Um, and on the other hand, the ECB officials, Christine Lagarde and others, continue to come out and say that the inflation is transitory, that it's not a problem, and that interest rates will remain on hold for at least the duration of 2022. So that there is definitely... Um, a marked difference at the moment between what the markets are thinking and what the um, interest rate policymakers, the ECB, are thinking. Um, I said to you a couple of weeks ago on a podcast that I believed that the risks to European interest rates this year were on the upside because um, inflation is seems to be becoming more embedded in the system. So I'm more in line with what the markets are thinking at the moment than what the ECB official stance is. And I guess that view for me was reiterated again yesterday when we saw the Eurozone unemployment rate fall to 7% in December, which is the lowest level on record. So when you get that sort of decline in unemployment, um, obviously that is going to start feeding into wage pressures. Not a lot of evidence of that happening across Europe at the moment, but you would have thought inevitably against the background of persistently high energy costs, food prices are starting to rise, that you know workers will start pushing for significantly higher wage increases. And of course, they will be able to do that in a strong labor market environment that is now evolving. So I, as I say, I'd be a little bit more with the markets than with what the ECB is saying. Um, interesting, in the United States, um, Markets and some market commentators are talking about the possibility of seven U.S. rate increases this year. Um, Federal Reserve officials have tried to throw cold water on that and suggest that five would be more likely. Uh, but it, it is. I, there was an article in the Financial Times yesterday from Martin Wolf where he was pretty scathing of the Federal Reserve and really believes that the Federal Reserve is behind the curve quite dramatically at the moment. And it's it's actually now too late. And he quoted um, William McChesney Martin, who was chairman of the Federal Reserve back in 1955, who said that the role of the Federal Reserve was to act as a chaperone who takes away the punch bowl when the party really starts to warm up. And that's the role of a central bank. And it is quite clear that the U.S. Economic Party is quite hot at the moment. And as I say, Wolf believes that the Federal Reserve should have acted already and will now be playing catch up. Um, he does. He ends on a slightly humorous note, I think, by saying that, um, you know, perhaps the Fed's view that the forecast tightening of rates will deliver robust growth and smooth disinflation simultaneously and that the COVID policies that were put in place to deal with COVID still make sense in today's economic circumstances. And he says that both of those things are less unlikely than the moon being, the moon being made of green cheese. Yeah, I think that he's overstating his case, Jim. Uh, I think he needs a little bit more humility. I understand it's a newspaper article, and 
newspaper articles that say it's all very difficult, we don't really know, um, and we need to wait and see, don't really sell a lot of newspapers or they don't get a lot of clicks. Uh, but the fact is that uh, we don't know. And there are a number of people at the other end of the Martin Wool spectrum who think that we are already seeing the start of some of this inflation start to abate. A lot of the supply side concerns, supply chain concerns are starting to abate. Not all of them. Um, and there are other reasons why people think that's the temporary versus permanent debate. So I do think being data dependent is what the Federal Reserve have said they've done. And I think that's an honourable position because not least Martin Wolf wasn't this time last year saying that US inflation would be heading for 6 7%. Um, and so I do think that given the uncertainties, it, there's a lot of uh, uh, hindsight trading going on here. And I, on Europe, yeah, I know you're, what you're saying, Jim, which is that um, you were right and I was wrong the other day when I was talking about rate hikes in Europe. No, I, I wasn't saying that, Chris. Yeah, yeah, well, time, time will tell. I'm pulling a leg. Um, but I am uh, far less worried about rate hikes in Europe than you, um, in the sense that, I, first of all, I think if they do go a lot of, do, with, with a lot of interest rate hikes this year, it will be a policy mistake. And they've made those before in Europe in particular. But ultimately, I don't think it'll be necessary because I think the European economy um, will slow down through the course of the year. And the reason why I think that is because it always does. It's Europe, its default position. The European economy always disappoints. And I, I don't see any particular reason why once we've worked through a lot of these pandemic effects rippling through economies, we don't go back to where we were, which is that the European economy disappoints. And I don't mean Ireland, by the way, I mean continental Europe. Um, okay, Jim, I, unless you've got anything else that you're burning to, to tell us, I think we should probably call it there and see you next time. Okay, Chris, I was going to ask you about Boris, but that would take another 35 minutes. So perhaps yeah. later in the week, we'll have uh, a broader discussion on Boris's situation. Uh, just to note that Sterling, despite all of the travails of Boris, Sterling remains pretty strong in the exchanges. It certainly does. Yes, but that's, we'll leave Boris to another day and hopefully we'll be able to one day say Boris who. All right, Jim, take it easy. Thanks, Chris. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.